What's going on? How are you? Fine yourself there. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, you look pretty prepared in the kitchen there, making something. <laughs> <laughs> we got a couple of things happening right now. Uh, just honestly celebrating uh, all that IO and uh, this partnership have to offer. We have a chicken yasa dish, our watch dish, classic beans and rice dish. But yeah, we're excited. I have a little bit of that, a little bit of this right here, um, our pepper sauce, and um, just excited to get into everything. Do you have a favorite of the I.O. offerings that are on the market? I know that might be a hard question to answer. It is. I'll be honest. It is. Um, I'm going to have to say personally this watchy dish. It's, it's, my, it's my favorite. I love the earthiness of the, the beans and the rice. It's a classic. I call it the OG rice and peas dish um, from, from West Africa, from Ghana specifically. Um, and it's just something I grew up eating. And I, I really, really love how authentic the flavors came out. Um, and, and really how beautiful this dish is uh, cooked in sorghum leaves. So you have that earthiness, also that beautiful, uh, like bright, almost dark rather, uh, magenta color. Um, and then you have uh, a little bit of coconut oil, some roasted garlic puree, uh, this beautiful red sauce that we pair it up with. Um, it's just, it's homely, right? It reminds me of comfort food. Uh, so that's something I would say is probably my favorite, but I'd be lying to and say that I don't enjoy everything else, man. Like when you kind of mix and match everything on a plate, kind of spread it out and have people just kind of serving each other. Um, it's hard to be mad at any one of these options for sure. When did you start to notice that West African food was accessible and lots of people liked it that weren't of West African descent? Yeah. Um, on a national scale, to be honest, I think uh, when I, when I started cooking for Top Chef, to be honest, um, I, there, there's chefs behind or before me, uh, Chef Pierre Tom comes to mind um, that, that did an amazing job of championing uh, uh, West African food. Uh, but yeah, being able to, to have the opportunity to cook on a national platform and do it for so long to make it to the finale uh, was really, really something that I started uh, noticing afterwards and start to see the uh, uh, really the interest in, in West African food, but not only just the food of the region, but food from everywhere. Globalization has become huge over the past year and just uh, folks wanting to know what life is like for people that live outside of their proximity, right? And um, I think that kind of fell into food and, um, and people wanting to be a little bit more curious and, and enjoy flavors and, and combinations of flavors uh, that they probably aren't used to. So I think a, a little bit of a combination of everything kind of put the stars in line uh, to have uh, West African food on the forefront of a lot of people's minds in the, in the culinary space right now. And uh, I really think it has a place to stay at the table. So it's kind of like a thing that you've been known to say about food and the way that it's prepared, bringing people together. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I, I love cooking a delicious meal, but I think uh, the most pleasure I get is when uh, I see my guests um, enjoying themselves with their guests, you know, with their, their spouse or a neighbor or a group of friends or whatever the case is. Um, and having that one hour, hour and a half of, uh, of memory making and really enjoying uh, something together. I don't remember, or I can't remember uh, a really uh, 
a significant meal that I had by myself. I don't know if you can or anybody else, honestly, it's usually with people around and we're yeah. celebrating a life moment. So, you know, I, I really, really wanted to, to celebrate that as much as possible. So um, it's the way that I like to cook, um, not only giving you something really delicious, but kind of making it an holistic experience and, and really uh, having you enjoy it all throughout. And then, you know, speak about it afterwards. Remember that thing that we had last week or whatever the case is, like, I love that that aspect about food and, and really what gets me going as a chef. I see fella behind you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> using that for meal preparation. Is that music that you usually have in the background? Always. You have a little bit of fella in the background um, just to kind of keep the, uh, the peace in the kitchen um, and keep the vibes going. But yeah, I, it's, it's just a, a testament, a huge musician and um, it, you know, having that kind of vibe and that that kind of atmosphere and that uh, that tempo, you know what I mean, in the kitchen really gets people going, especially when we're just prepping and everything else like that. So Fella is awesome for that um, and an awesome soundtrack. Wiz Kid, the little Burner Boy, all of the above, for sure, yeah. Cool. <laughs> so b- besides working with this wonderful brand whose products are right in front of you, what else is coming up from you? What can we look forward to from Chef Eric in the near future? Oh my goodness. Yeah, um, writing two cookbooks at the moment, um, which I'm really, really excited about. They should be out next year. Uh, doing a little bit more television as well, um, which I'm really happy for. Uh, I'm uh, hopefully have my hands on a restaurant pretty soon uh, once everything kind of settles with this. But um, at the moment, really just enjoying the partnerships that I'm working with, uh, not only IO, but a few other great partnerships as well and uh, great uh, businesses and brands. And uh, yeah, just, you know, cooking and getting better. Uh, that's personally what I want to do every single time. Every year I want to be a better chef, know a little bit more about the food I'm cooking and about food that you know I'm not cooking as well and, and just uh, be a better human. I think that right there uh, hopefully will propel me and you know the other opportunities that come my way. And the last question here, putting you on the spot, besides this interview, besides okay. IO, what's one thing that we should be watching, whether it's a TV show or a streaming kind of show? Do you have a recommendation mm. as long someone needs a new show to start? Ooh, someone needs a new show to start. The Globe, check out The Globe. Um, it's an awesome show. I am actually on the first episode. So it's a shameless plug. The Globe is a great uh, culinary competition right now on Discovery Plus, and um, it's cool. It's hosted by Robert Irvine, Chef Robert Irvine, and it's an awesome set huge amount of uh, tv screens and they pretty much transport you to different uh, culinary locations so one time you're in budapest next time you're in accra ghana um and and it's it's awesome you get to cook the food of that uh specific area so the globe is something i'm really excited to be about uh be a part of right now and um a few more shows are coming out so be on the tune i'll be on the lookout for uh, chopped uh, Top Chef Amateurs as well as a new show that's uh, that's out that I'll be on as well. So uh, on the TV screen a couple more times this year, which I'm excited for. But um, uh, the Globe is definitely something that I had so much fun uh, recording. So cool. Yes, I'll have to check that out. Well, onwards and upwards. Congratulations on all the pending success, current success. Great part. Oh, man. Thank you for your time. I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank Take you. care. Take care. Hey, can you hear me now, Daniel? I am live and with you, my friend. Thank you very much. Not your first live time as a broadcaster. I know you had a radio show, but how's it going there today? So far, so good? So far, so good. I've got my 13 and 11-year-olds. They're both going on 29 and trying to keep them uh, uh, busy and happy is a challenge. I can imagine. Well, speaking of family, 
as a Long Islander, you always have to justify being from Long Island when you're speaking to people from other parts. They think that Long Island is just this town and not just many, many towns. And anytime you want to say, I'm from Long Island, there's great people from Long Island. The top three, your family, Seinfeld, and Billy Joel. That Not in order like that per se, but you are one of the people that I associate with Long Island. And it's wonderful to see that your new film, My Promise to PJ, is screening at the Long Beach International Film Festival, but not your first film screening at this festival, correct? Didn't you scream the wisdom to know the difference there? I did, I did. Actually, we won the festival with that film. It was, uh, uh, it's a great event, really classy. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, you know, this COVID thing has changed, you know, how the festivals are going. And it's very sad because that's one of the ones you want to go to. Yeah. Long did you spend a lot of time growing up around Long Beach? Now you're from Massapequa, I'm from Belmore, but growing up in Belmore, Long Beach could be the other side of the world when you don't have a car. Did you go to JFK? I went to JFK. Right on there. Um, yeah, uh, you know, no, I, I didn't spend a lot of time, you know, as a kid, having a car meant you were some, you know, really wealthy family. If you were a high school kid that had a car, we were definitely not that family, so. You know, we had the one car with the broken muffler station wagon with six kids in it. That was us. So we stayed in Massapequa. But as an adult, because this is going to be your second time where you're the director of a film showing at this festival, had you spent a lot of time in Long Beach over the years? Because it's kind of one of those towns that's seen its ups and downs over the decades. Yeah, um, you know, I only know Long Beach from uh, playing football in high school. There were a powerhouse football team. Um, and... Uh, uh, and going to the festival. Otherwise, I didn't really, I don't have a lot of experience being in Long Beach proper. Um, it's great restaurants down on the water. You know, I mean, the typical stuff when, you know, we were in high school and college and we'd run down to Long Beach. But, you know, I lived in California uh, for uh, 25 years. I lived in Canada. I've lived in Europe. And, you know, so um, not a great demand for me to go back to the island unless I'm going back to see, you know, go out to the Hamptons to see my brother Alec. Or, or go to festivals. And so, you know, Long Beach obviously is, is such a classy festival and I enjoy it so much. I continue when I make a film to submit it to that festival because it's such a nice experience. Right. Well, my promise to PJ is the film that's screening there. When did you actually finish the film? Because as somebody who tapes interviews five, six days a week, sometimes you hear 2017, we finished it. And then other people go, no, we made it during the pandemic and finished it then. Yeah, so for me, um, um, I made the film, I shot the film in five months. Uh, I did a couple of touch-up interviews after that. Mm -hmm. uh, Post-production, which, um, you know, is very different than a scripted film. You know, this is a documentary where I'm capturing things. I don't know what I'm going to get. You know, when I'm scripting it, I have a, in my mind, right. where I'm going to make certain changes and do things or possibly trick the audience to thinking <laughs> Um, but uh, that's not so in a documentary. You know, I had uh, three cameras uh, with 60 hours worth of footage. Um, so it was 180 hours in the editing room to trim down to 96, 97 minutes. So it was quite challenging. Uh, um, you know, when, when you're there and some guy walks up to you and starts talking about uh, uh, something that's interesting and, and, you know, and that's a, a three minute piece or a two minute piece, even a 30 second piece. And when you're in the editing room, you realize you're really long. That first cut, you know, it was three hours, you know, and then you start reaching out because I'm not a, um, uh, 
a hugely experienced documentarian. So I'm reaching out to other friends of mine who are renowned in the documentary world. And I'm saying, well, how long should I, you know, should I, should I make the movie? I mean, what, is there a, a formula that, you know, and, and it was interesting to me because I once asked Marty Scorsese, I said, you know, you have movies that are two hours long and you have movies that are over three hours long. Yeah. You know, what's, what would you do? And he said, how long can you compel your audience? How long does it take you to tell your story? And that they're interested in sitting there because if it's a really good story, they're not counting, they're not looking at their clock. You know what I mean? So, uh, and, th and that was the rule of thumb that I used in, in cutting this film together. Um, you know, it's a story about uh, um, a young man who I knew his family, his, his mom and dad both grew up in Massapequa. His dad dated my, my sister, Beth. His mother was uh, one of my, my brother Alex's first girlfriends in junior high school. Um, and uh, I was called upon because I put it out there on social media that I'll help people get sober if they need my help. Mm -hmm. And uh, he reached out to me to help her son. And he was struggling greatly with this terrible opioid problem that we have, particularly on the island. It's really rampant right now. Agreed. And yes. COVID has made it even worse. Mm -hmm. So uh, to make a long story short, I helped him get sober. He got sober. I put him into multiple rehabs and, um, on that last one, uh, I promised him that I would take him to run with the bulls in Pamplona, Spain, if he got if he got sober, and he did. Um, and then uh, he suffered some very dramatic setbacks. And uh, um, it's about um, keeping your word, and and it's about uh, a journey that I went on. You know, a lot of people have watched the film and said, "What a great thing you did for your friend." Um, I did a lot of it for myself. I struggled greatly with with what happened to PJ and. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I, I had hoped that maybe I would be able to do something that would help someone else by making the film. Maybe someone's going to watch this movie. And if it saves a single life, it was well worth it. So uh, if you've lost someone um, unexpectedly, um, if you've lost someone or a struggling um, family member or even yourself with a drug and alcohol problem, this is a documentary you would want to see. Being such a personal, emotional film where you are the focal point at a lot of points of the film here did you know outright that you wanted to direct and not just produce it um i'm not a huge uh fan of producing it's it's just one of the hats i don't i'm a creator and a filmmaker mm -hmm. so, you know having made over 150 films as an as an actor mm -hmm. um i found that uh um, directing them um, is uh is probably my calling. So I knew that telling the story would require my to have to direct it, but I had great help. You know, I had Andy Bowles, who was my cinematographer, and you know, I knew I could trust uh, his eye and his and, and his way. Uh, yeah. And uh, Nick Fry, my editor too. Uh, you know, he he was there for me. You know, every step of the way when we had to make those um, really difficult decisions on what stays and what goes. Well, on the end of being a director and an actor, as somebody who just did a lot of press junkets related to the Tribeca Film Festival, I can't tell you how many of the films, the writer is the director, is the lead producer, it, like everyone is doing all of that. But when you started first having success in acting, not a lot of people were writer slash director. When did you exactly say, I am a director? Because you did have credits before the wisdom to know the difference, but that was the first thing that, in my opinion, you did that people went, he's a director, all right, you know? 
Yeah, I, I, I'd say to answer that question, I've always likened acting on a project to being married in four independent marriages. You're married to the, married to the actors, you're married to the director, yeah. um, then your personal relationship as, as um, what your plan or take on it, on it is. Um, and you try to meld those relationships into one and, and try to make it work. When you're a director, it's like being a parent. It's far more responsibility. It's now, um, um, you know, you raise the child from the script, you start, uh, you know, shooting the film and then there's all the post-production until you throw it up on a screen and they go away to college and now you're done. So um, I liken it to those two analogies in life. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I think I'm pretty good at being a parent, you know, so I, I enjoy the, um, the frenetic, crazy energy of it and, and trying to calm it down and get the job done. Um, I have uh, definitely clear visions of what it is I'm trying to accomplish when I'm directing and it's very challenging. Now, as you said before, you are a creative person and that's why you're drawn to this craft. What that makes me super curious about is when you make a movie, sometimes it doesn't come out for three or four years and then you have to do media and then you're talking about something you already did for another year or two. And I can imagine that could be draining because you want to focus on the new and the future per se. How do you handle that when you know you've wrapped a film and you're going to be have to talk about the past? Do you have other creative outlets besides acting, directing, that kind of thing? Well, you, you, you raise a really interesting point uh, and, and very poignant in my life right now. Um, no other film probably in my career will accentuate that statement more than my promise to PJ because, um, you know, it, 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 it's a, a story about keeping this promise to this boy. But, you know, I would challenge anyone to sit with their own family. My sister Beth's in the movie. My sister Jane's in the movie. Alec, Billy and Steve are in the movie. And to... Um, have to relive those moments of them talking to me about what it was like when I was not sober and how I wreaked havoc on this family and my career. And then so to, to sit with them and interview them and have them, you know, essentially, you know, bash me in, in, in many ways was difficult. Um, yeah. But in an editing room and watch it over and 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 you get the point. Um, then, you know, now you're married to the film because I did produce it. I acted in it. I directed it. Um, so now I'm going festival to festival. And when I watch, because I'm in the audience, watch, I'll be in the audience tomorrow watching the film again here in Minnesota at a festival. And um, it's tough. It's a tough thing to swallow, you know, to, to have your older brother who you idolized in many ways and loved. And he was my hero when I was a little boy. Uh, say to me, yeah, I didn't want anything to do with you. You were a drug addict. So I didn't talk to you or really hang out with you for a decade, you know, and, and then tell me the reasons why, you know, so uh, it's a tough pill to swallow. It is. Uh, it was necessary that it was um, uh, beyond the film. There was, um, uh, they, they got to have a voice. They got to actually sit with me. Not that we hadn't had these discussions, probably not in that detail. And, 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 uh, um, again, the, the editing process of having to watch it over and over was almost like, you know, I felt like I was some, uh, some war prisoner being tortured. You know, it was like, it was hard. I can imagine for me having to edit these interviews before I put them out, I just have to listen to a couple of stutters 
that I did, a couple of word errors. I don't have to listen to traumatic things like you did as part of this. So kudos to you for doing such wonderful stuff on that end. Where I was going on the other creative outlet and is I find that people who excel at acting often have hobbies that are the exact 180 of acting. For example, they're a painter, they're a photographer. They just do something that they immediately see the result. They don't have to show it to anyone. No one has to judge it and they go, that's it. <laughs> do you have anything like that personally or too busy between family and these really have, intense projects? Yeah, I have two daughters uh, and I raised them on my own. So that's, a, you know, in itself a full-time job. So, um, you know, I spend a lot of time with my children. I, I am a hands-on dad. I don't have a nanny. I don't have the housekeeper. I don't have, um, so, um, you know, I drive them uh, 45 minutes each way to school and I make their breakfast and I make their lunch and I make their dinner and I have an organic farm at my house and I live on a lake and we fish for our food and we're very uh, uh, self-sufficient there. Um, um, so now being a dad and, 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 and making movies is, uh, is it enough for me. Self-sufficient is the key word because this is such a self-sufficient project that you, you know, have. Plus the home life is self-sufficient. So it doesn't sound like you need those other hobbies to keep yourself busy because there's organically enough going on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty busy. Well, two last questions for you and then you're a free man. And the first thing I touched upon, the whole Long Island thing, again, to outsiders, they just think it's a town and people live on Long Island. No, it's just, it's hours to get from Valley Stream to Spionk or Montauk or especially if there's traffic. But in your case, did you grow up going to concerts? Like what were the concert venues before you got out of here? Gosh, I remember seeing the police at my father's place, the first gig they ever played in the US and uh, Jones Beach Theater, I, I helped with Bruce Abrams and a couple other guys build that deck for Ronnie Delsner that connects the, so we built, so yeah, I was uh, the OBI pastime pub. I bartended at, so I remember seeing Kiss before the makeup and Joey Ramone and the Ramones. And, you know, so yeah, no, I, I was definitely part of that scene in the seventies and, and early eighties. Uh, um, Long Island is a, um, has a lot of great venues for music. Um, so, um, yeah, we scalped tickets at the Nassau Coliseum and all the way from the Beacon and, um, you know, the Garden and stuff. You know, we made a ton of money when Michael Jackson would decide to do a concert. It was like, you train all time. <laughs> wow. Well, it sounds like sometime in the future, I will interview about the musical end of your life. But the last thing I want to know is, besides my promise to PJ... Do you have a film or TV recommendation you could pass along to someone who needs a new show to start, a new thing to get into? And it's fine if you appeared in it. Uh, I will tell you that I just signed a very lucrative um, production deal to shoot a new show oh. called Perfect Brats. And uh, it'll shoot down in Florida. Um, I will be down in Florida. Um, um, I'm the creator of the show uh, with... Um, uh, Chris Savino uh, of Jerry Seinfeld fame. Chris, a very noted and uh, and respected uh, producer in film and television. Uh, Chris and I have decided to team up with the G-Star School, very unique and interesting school that they have down in Florida. It's a high school that a, has a, one of the most comprehensive studios and shooting facilities in all of America. And so in conjunction, the three of us 
uh, uh, we are um, planning on, it looks like I'm going to um, direct Alec in another film. Um, I don't want to give too much of that away yet. That's that's going to be interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, so look for Perfect Brats as a, a really interesting, unique format show. You'll you'll see when you find out about it more. I don't want to give it away yet, but uh, yeah, go ahead to Florida shoot a TV show. Congratulations on that lucrative deal, and congratulations in advance when you win another festival this summer here in Long Beach. So thank you for your time, and really looking forward to everything coming for me in the future. Great, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to interview me. God bless you. Am I getting you from beautiful Canada? I would assume you're still reamed into the borders there. Yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations on this great new album that you've got, Power Trio. Some artists that I speak with, when they're making a new album, they know exactly what they want it to sound like even before it's written. In your case, did you know the concept and the title and all that like three years ago? Uh, no, we don't really think three years ago we were putting out our last album. Um, no, actually, I think, uh, well, the, the, the album title was, was hatched before we went into the studio, but it was only after we finished writing the songs. We don't really think about things like that too much, too far ahead. We just try and write a whole bunch of good songs when we can uh when it's time to write a new album so that's about as much thought as we put into it i want out is such a great opener when you wrote that did you know hey this is the opener no no uh, we don't we don't really think about um we don't write songs like that uh the sequencing of the album is usually done after by jc uh when all the songs are recorded and so it, it just happens as we go along with the recording of the record some some songs pop out more than others so hmm. interesting there do you remember which song you wrote first for the album though yeah i do actually it was a uh, blue jean denim jumpsuit i believe it's track six um and it, that was written in total isolation from one another from the opening riff to um the finished uh demo when rich sent his drums on, put his drums onto the raw kind of metronome that we had for him, sending files back and forth. That song really kind of brightened up and blossomed. So we were able to do that. Uh, we, it gave us the, uh, the courage, the confidence to know that we could finish the album in isolation during a pandemic. That was actually going to be my next question. Was the whole thing written and recorded or is there a false start before the pandemic? Uh, well, we had um, we had uh, uh, started to write the record before the pandemic. So we had about five or six riffs that actually ended up on the album, but no songs were finished or no songs were arranged. So we did. Uh, so once the uh, lockdown hit and we had to be in isolation from one another. You know, it was JC who said, you know, we should really do a record. I really didn't want to do it. I wasn't in the mood. Um, you know, there's too much fear and anxiety that were looming over everybody to do much of anything. But uh, he insisted and, you know, reluctantly picked up my guitar. And I noticed that it was a nice respite from constantly thinking about the virus. And that enabled us to, you know, kind of write the record. Um, and we had, you know, usually when we do a record, we have we're, we only do records in front of each other, bashing out riffs. Um, this time we did it in isolation, but 
then again, we always have things to do. We have always, always have tours and shows. And sometimes we write in between all that. This time mm -hmm. there was endless amounts of time, endless hours to kind of go through things with a fine tooth comb than we ever have before, like lyrics, melodies, guitar solos. I, I could really kind of take my time putting together a guitar solo or, or go over lyrics more so than I'd ever done before. Do you ever write on acoustic guitar? Acoustic guitars? No. Who does that? That's lame. Acoustic <laughs> guitars, acoustic guitars kind of suck. So they really do. It's well, kind of like, well, it's kind of like, you know, the, the acoustic guitar came first and then they invented the electric guitar, right? Yeah. So that's kind of like I liken it to like, well, someone made one ply toilet paper and then they came up with three ply. You don't go back to one ply when when you've got three ply. Outro cast.